Turn, if you would, to the second chapter of Hebrews. A couple of statistics for those of you who collect useless statistics. 49% of American Protestants say they would trust their pastor's advice about parenting. I don't know why it's only 49%. I guess the pastors have some bad kids. 23% of American Catholics would trust their priest recommendations about parenting. Why do you think that number is so low? Why are you laughing? They have no children. Well, not officially. Catholic, what? Catholic priests are celibate, they have no children, so why would you go to a Catholic priest to ask him about raising children? Now, they have studied the Bible, I'll give them that. That's good, okay? But you want, when you're talking to somebody about raising kids, you would prefer talking to somebody who had raised kids, right? We're gonna talk today, and actually for a couple of weeks coming, about Jesus being our great high priest. And we're going to talk about the fact that it was necessary for him to be human like us so that we can relate to him and he can relate to us. He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. He is not someone who is so aloof that he cannot relate to the struggles that you and I have. And we're going to start that discussion. In fact, we started it last week, but we didn't quite make it through chapter 2. So we're going to finish chapter 2 today, and then we're going to go into chapter 3. But in order to do all that, let's stop for a moment and let's go back in time, even further than this. In fact, let's go back to the start of Judaism. God called Abraham and said, go somewhere. I'll tell you when you get there. Abraham, by faith, went. We'll see this later when we talk about faith. So Abraham went. He had a son in his old age, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, Joseph, is taken into sold into slavery in Egypt, rises to be second in command, brings the family down during a famine, and they stay there for 400 years. And things turn out poorly. They turn out poorly because they multiply greatly and the Egyptians begin to worry about them. They begin to worry that these upstart Hebrews are going to overthrow their country. So they put them in bondage. They make them build the big things, right? So God sends Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. You know the life of Moses. We've talked about that before. Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's household. He kills an Egyptian. He flees the country. He spends 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep. Now, just as an aside, I would think that's pretty good training to be a leader, leading sheep. But I'm not going to go there either. So God tells him to come back and to talk to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And we go through a series of encounters between Moses and Pharaoh, where Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way. God sends a plague. Eventually, Pharaoh says, oh, shoot, sure, go. As soon as the plague goes away, Pharaoh changes his mind. And it tells us that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Remember that phrase, because today we're going to talk about hardening our hearts. But not only does it say that Pharaoh hardens his heart, it also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
In fact, it almost just kind of rotates. Sometimes it's Pharaoh, sometimes it's God. But eventually, eventually, at the death of the firstborn of every family, Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here. In fact, the people of Egypt give the Israelites all this stuff. It says that the Jews plundered the Egyptians. Here, take more stuff with you. Why do you think they did that? My opinion, they were worried that the next night it would be the second born, and the next night it would be the third born, and they wanted them out of town. It didn't matter what it cost, get them out of town. So the Jews get up and they start marching. And remember, we're talking several million people here. And they march out toward the Red Sea, and there's a sea in front of them, and Pharaoh gets ticked off again. So he sends his army after them. He sends his army, and the people are panicking. I mean, you've heard the phrase, between a rock and a hard place, they're between the sea that they cannot cross and the Egyptian army that they cannot fight. And they whine and they complain, which I might add is going to be a common characteristic of their behavior. And God tells Moses, raise up your staff. He raises up your staff, his staff, and the waters part, and they walk across on dry land. Now, that's kind of interesting, because even if you did miraculously, which he did, separate the waters, the bottom's going to be a muddy mess. I mean, my yard's still recovering from the rain from last week. This is ground, it was dry, and they walk across. Well, Pharaoh says, if they can do it, I can do it. So he takes off with his army into the ground between the waters. And God snaps his fingers, the waters close, and that's the end of the Egyptian army. The Israelites are all excited. They sing, they dance, they have a great time, and off they go again. And they complain some more. God sends them food. They complain some more. He gives them quail. God, they complain some more. He gives them water. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law. This is not just the Ten Commandments, although it certainly includes the Ten Commandments. It is the instructions on how they are to operate. In fact, it is the instructions on how they are to build the tabernacle, the place of worship. And while they're up, he's up there with God, the people are down there making golden calves. Think about this just for a moment. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. What was happening 400 years ago in this country? I think Jamestown was here. Okay, That's a long time ago. They have been living in the midst of the Egyptians with all the Egyptian gods. They had been immersed in a foreign culture. I'm not sure how strong their faith was. To the point that when Moses came, he asked God, what am I supposed to tell him your name is? They had lost contact with all of that. So... When Moses leaves, they do what a good Egyptian would do. They make a golden calf, and they start worshiping it. Moses gets ticked off, breaks the Ten Commandments, kills a few people, goes and gets the law again. And all this time, they are on their way to the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham years ago. So God tells them, take 12 spies, 12 scouts, one from each tribe, and off they go into the promised land. And they see great wealth there, great agriculture, grapes as big as you can carry, all this great stuff. And they also see tough guys. And they go, wow, that's a big wall over there. Wow, that's a tough-looking guy over there. And they come back to Moses, and ten of them say, no way can we do this. No way, we cannot do it. Two of them say, let's go get them. 
Those two are Joshua and Caleb. And God gets ticked off. I keep saying that. I'm not sure God actually gets ticked off. But <laughs> God says, okay, if you don't want to do it, why don't you wander around here for 40 years and think about it? Every one of you that is over the age of 20 is going to die in the desert. I am going to raise another generation who is prepared to do what I want them to do. The only people that aren't going to die that are over the age of 20 are Joshua and Caleb. And so for 40 years, they wander around in circles, while over there is the promised land that will be given to them, except they didn't take it. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians who are either on their way to rejecting their faith or contemplating rejecting their faith. Times have gotten hard, times have gotten difficult, and they want to go back to something else. And Jesus is, not was, is better than everything else that is a potential option to them. That's what the book of Hebrews is going to teach us. It is better, he is better than the prophets. He is better than the angels. Today we're going to see that he's better than Moses. We're going to see that he's better than fill in the blank. But the warning we're going to see today is don't be like those Jews that rejected God, that hardened their hearts and wandered in the desert for 40 years. Remember, this is the pattern we're going to see. He's going to talk about Jesus being better, and every so often he's going to stop, and he's going to look you in the eye and say, I'm warning you, don't go away. Remember we saw this a couple of weeks ago when the author said, don't drift away from your faith. And we had a long discussion. Today the warning is, don't harden your heart like those Jews did in the wilderness. And let me just jump in right here. It's not Jews in the wilderness that harden their hearts. It's all of us, potentially all of us, who turn our back on what God has told us to do. So, let's finish off last week's lesson real quick, and then we'll get into chapter 3. Uh, we might as well start at a paragraph. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. We talked about that last week. And delivered all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That would be us. It is not just biological Jews. It is those who by faith are following after God. We saw this in Galatians. We see this in the book of Romans. Not everyone that is born of Abraham is of Abraham. And we are of Abraham when we follow God by faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That's a big word. What is propitiation? Payment for our sin. Okay? Our sin has to be paid for. We've had this discussion so many times in this class. The idea that we often have is that God just decided to not look at our sin. I'm going to pretend you really didn't sin. I didn't see it. It doesn't happen. No. He knows we sinned, and that sin requires a payment. It requires propitiation. And that's what Jesus, as the great high priest, did for us. Lots more discussion about Jesus as the high priest in the weeks to come. 
became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He can relate to us. We had a discussion last week, and I raised a question. I think I raised a question. If not, I'll do it again. How many of you think... No, that's not the question. How many of you think that Jesus could have sinned? Do not raise your hands. The first time I ever taught this passage, I was actually at, in Virginia when, I, when we lived there for two years, and I actually handed out ballots, okay? Do you, yes or no, think that Jesus could have sinned? You ready for this? It was exactly split. Half of them said yes, half of them said no. And I mentioned that to one of the elders, and he said, well, that's stupid. Of course he couldn't have sinned. Well, it's an interesting observation. Huh? Sound like you're walking on thin ice. Every time. Could Jesus have sinned? Jesus had every physical thing necessary to sin, okay? It wasn't like he didn't have a hand so he couldn't whack somebody. It wasn't that he didn't have emotions where he would get angry at somebody. It wasn't that he didn't have you pick your favorite body part, that would have prevented him from sinning in some fashion. He had everything he needed to sin, just like you and I do. The difference is that because of his relationship with the Father, he wasn't going to sin. It is like my mother told me one time. She and I had a discussion about this years ago. She said, I could cheat on my husband, but because of my love, I'm not going to do it. Now, all the body parts were there to cheat, but she chose not to do it. We can get into a longer discussion. We're not going to do it, but I'll raise the question anyway. When you get to heaven... Will you be able to sin? Hmm. No? No. Why? Because being in the presence of a holy God, sin would be abhorrent to you. Yes? <laughs> he wants my answer, and I gave my answer. He just didn't like it. As a human, Jesus could have. As God, he wasn't going to. So the scripture is going to tell us several times, actually, here. He was tempted in every way as you and I are, yet without sin. He suffered the pain that's associated with temptation. And I made the argument last week that I think he suffered it more because you and I have this natural tendency. Don't confess anything to me, please. We have this natural tendency that when the temptation gets too hard, we just say, well, I'll give in to it. God will forgive me. So I would argue that we don't make it to the end of temptation every time. Jesus made it to the end of temptation every time as far as it went. Yeah, to show us how we could deal with temptation. There's a hand up. Yes. Did Jesus have a sin nature? No. 
because he was not, he did not have a biological father. Huh? No, he, could, he did not have a sin nature because it did not have a biological father. He had a mother, and God was the father. And we are told in the scripture that the sin nature is transmitted through the male line. She looks perplexed now. <laughs> Let's keep going. Please. The sin nature is our propensity towards sin. Okay? My father sinned, therefore I have a tendency to sin. Not only do I have a tendency to sin, I am going to sin. I was born with a sin nature. Jesus was not born with a sin nature. Now, here is the tricky thing. Well, then he's cheating, right? He's cheating because he doesn't have a sin nature that's driving him to sin. Well, he still has temptation. It's just that he, unlike us, did not have that propensity to give in. Therefore, he was able to say no when Satan tempted, and I would argue throughout his life when he was tempted. I mean, just face it. Sitting on the cross you'd be tempted to do something about it when you know you could. You and I would just have to grin and bear it. Probably no grinning, but I mean, because we couldn't do anything else. Jesus, on the other hand, could have put a stop to it anytime he wanted to. What kind of temptation is that? So, he suffered the temptation. He did not have the propensity to sin that you and I are born with. Okay? So. In fact, I had a discussion with myself this week. I do this all the time. Back, back to my, my discussion about, you know, the Protestants, you'll ask them about parenting, but the Catholics, they can't relate because they don't have kids. And I thought, well, wait a minute, Jesus didn't have kids. But, you know, he did, like, create them. We could cut him a little slack because of that. <sighs> Chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, who, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was, a, was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Wow, there's a lot there. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who shared in a heavenly calling. Let's just stop right there. This would certainly lead us to believe that the audience, the recipients of this letter are believers. He is writing to a group of believers who were Jews who are thinking of giving up the faith. This is important to remember because in a couple of chapters we're going to have this lovely discussion about whether you can lose your salvation or not. I'll just tell you the answer, no. But it's going to be a lovely discussion about that. Yes, ma'am. Are you saying they were thinking of giving up the Christian faith or giving up the Jewish faith? Yes. <laughs> okay. They were definitely thinking of giving up the Christian faith. Now, whether they were thinking of returning to Judaism or just returning to nothingness, that, that probably either way would go. Okay. 
but the, it's the Christian faith that they're thinking about just walking away from. And my point has been about the book of Hebrews is that's a natural tendency of lots of people. There are lots of people who grow up in the faith. At some point, they accept it. At some point, they're real excited about it. At some point, it really means something to them. And then they get bored and walked away. They just do. You know those kind of people. I know those kind of people. You know people who at some point in their life were all gung-ho. Yes, let's go to church. Let's do religious stuff. And then they got bored, tired of it. I don't know. That's what the book of Hebrews is written to address. Exactly. Therefore, holy brothers, you who shared a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. I like those two words, by the way. Just as a general observation, when you're trying to make a decision in life about anything, when you're trying to decide which way to go about anything, when you're just contemplating life itself, here are two words to remember. Consider Jesus. Just an observation. How many of our decisions in life get made as if Jesus is, well, he's over there somewhere, and if I really need him, I'll go look for him. And I might ask him. Usually that occurs when I've made the wrong decision and I want help getting out of it. But just as a general observation, when you're making decisions in life, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is an apostle. That's weird. We know 12 apostles, right? And one of them turned bad, and they replaced him. And then God replaced him with Paul. So we know apostles are people who spent time with Jesus, but apostle is someone who is called to proclaim a message. He's sent to give a message. The apostle says, this is what God did. This is what Jesus did. And guess what? Jesus was sent by God to give you and I a message. He is an apostle. We don't normally think about that because we are worried that that would put him in the same category with the other 12. And he's not in that category. But he is the apostle and high priest. As I said, we keep hinting at this idea about Jesus being the high priest. We're going to talk about that at length in weeks to come. But let's remind ourselves. Moses went up on the mountain. He came back down. He came back down with the law. He came back down with instructions on what the priests were to do. His brother, who's his brother? Aaron was called to be the high priest. He and his descendants were called to go into the Holy of Holies and make an offering, a propitiation, an atonement for the sins of the people. That's what they were called to do. And we're going to see that Jesus is the great high priest. And it gets even better than that. Not only is he the great high priest, he is also the great sacrifice at the same time. Go ahead. Okay. I don't believe they are. Huh? I don't believe they are. <laughs> his his comment is that there are people today who believe that they are apostles. And I'm not going to get too wrapped up in what they want to call themselves. You know, if I'm talking to a Catholic priest, I'll call him a priest. I don't think he is, but, you know, I'll, I'll give him that. Um, the Catholic Church today believes in what is known as apostolic succession. That means Peter, the first uh, pope, 
that's what they believe, said, tag your it to the next guy, and his apostolic power went to the next guy. And he tagged the next person, not you, sorry, the next guy, <laughs> and that's the way it works. There is apostolic succession. So the power that was embedded in the apostle Peter, that is the keys to the kingdom, and the loosening and the restricting has been given to the successors of. Now, there are churches today outside the Catholic Church who do believe in apostolic succession. Now, if all that means is they follow the teachings of the apostles, who can go wrong? If they mean by that that they have the same authority as the apostles to declare the word of God, whether it agrees with or not the scripture, then they've fallen off of a cliff. Okay, so that's where I would put the, I would not worry too much if they called themselves an apostle. It's when they started trying to speak on behalf of God things that are contrary to the scripture that I would go, nah, I don't think so. Does that answer the question? Yeah. So, but you're right. There are there. And yes, sir. There are others in the New Testament that are called apostles as Barnabas. Oh, yeah. They were apostles of the church. The church does Uh, Jesus says, tag, you're it, and you're it, okay? Um, so anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that is open to abuse, and if they're not abusing it, well, okay, whatever. So, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Oh, I was going to add one more comment about Jesus being the high priest, just to whet your appetite. Who was the first high priest? I just said this. Aaron. What tribe was Aaron from? Huh? The Levite. What tribe was Jesus from? Judah. So how in the world can Jesus be the great high priest when he's not even a Levite? We're going to talk about that in weeks to come. Because there's an answer, and it's addressed in the book of Hebrews. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. This is pretty simple. Jesus did everything the Father told him to do. That's what it means to be faithful. He did what he was supposed to do. It's really pretty simple. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. We're going to compare and contrast Jesus with Moses. And he gives Moses a lot of credit. Moses did what God told him to do. Now, you could argue he was a little reluctant about it at times. I'll give you that. You can, give him, you can say that he was overzealous and got in trouble because of it. I'll give you that. But as a human being, Moses did what God told him to do. When Moses saw the burning bush, and the burning bush, God speaking through the burning bush, said, go down to Pharaoh, he was a little perturbed about it because he tried to make excuses. But, you know, at the end of the day, he went. He went to Pharaoh what had Moses been doing for 40 years? Watching sheep. And he's entering Pharaoh's household. He's doing what God would have him do. Jesus was faithful. Moses was faithful. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. How much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself? Okay, here's kind of tricky. You build a house. You could have done better is what he's saying. You build a house. What's more important? 
the physical two by fours, bricks, nails, screws, shingles of the house or the person who built it, or I might add, the person who lives in it. We believe, I believe, I don't know about you, that people are more important. So we have a builder of a house, and the builder built the house that he was told to build. There are some commentaries that will tell you that he's talking here about the tabernacle. And I'll go with that to a little bit. God told Moses how to build the tabernacle. And it's interesting because he gives him excruciating details on how to do it. This is exactly what it looks like. And then Moses turns to the builders and says, this is what it looks like. And guess what? Same excruciating detail. This is what you're to, to build. And then the scripture says he built it, and then it goes into excruciating detail to describe what he built so that you know that it matched what Moses had told the builder and what God had told Moses because it was important to God. That was important. The house was built correctly. Moses was faithful. We're not bad-mouthing Moses in this section. But, well, that's true. That's what I said. Some people refer to the tabernacle as the house. Some of it's just doing his work in life in general. But, how much more glory as the builder of the house has much more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone. Every house is built, have any of you ever seen a house that just happened? Okay, you may have seen some that look like they just happened. <laughs> I've been in my house at times when it looks like the inside just happened. But we know that there was a builder of that house. At this point, if we wanted to, we could have a long discussion about the whole theory of evolution and things evolving, but we're not going to do that. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. You could get your hammer and nails out and go build a house. Sterling's would look real good. Mine, not so good. You could do that. You could build something. Moses built something, but above that is the creator of all things, who is God. As I was reading yesterday, God can make anything out of nothing. You can make everything out of something, but you have to start with something. What did God start with? Nothing. He spoke it into existence. That's a long discussion too. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Let's just look at these two relationships. Once again, there's nothing in this chapter, this section, bad-mouthing Moses. Moses was doing exactly what Moses was supposed to do. But Moses was a servant of God. A servant does not set the agenda. A servant does not decide what needs to be done. Well, he decides what needs to be done to follow the instructions of the master of the house. He is a servant, not to be confused with a son. Now, there's an interesting discussion in the book of Galatians about the fact that for a while, when a son is small, the servant can kind of control him. But at some point, everybody knows the child is going to be the master and the servant is still going to be the servant. You ready for this? You and I are the servants. All we're to do is to do what God asks us to do. And in that case... Jesus, in the parable, God, Jesus, at the end time, will say, well done, my 
good and faithful servant. We are not the son. Now, we will have a discussion much, much later about the fact that we are adopted children. But Jesus is the unique, the only begotten son of God. So, here's Moses. You're a good Jew. Moses is cool stuff. Abraham is cool stuff. Moses is great stuff. He did great and magnificent things. And the author of the book of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the son in the house, and Moses is the servant doing what a servant is supposed to do. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's a strange sentence. We are his house. Okay? You're a brick. I'm a two-by-four. You're a... No. We know that God is constructing the church to be the house of God. And it's not a building. It's you and it's me. We are the house of God. Now, we happen to meet in this nice building. More power to it. But this building is not the church. It is where the church meets. And that's cool. We are the building. We are the church. If we hold fast our confidence. What is confidence? Confidence is believing what God says is true. I have confidence that God is going to do what God says he's going to do. Or I don't have much confidence. You know what? I just kind of got tired of waiting on him. Abraham and Sarah, Sarai, but we'll call her Sarah, had waited a long, long time for a child. And Sarah finally said, enough of this, let's go to plan B. And Abraham went along with it, and it caused all kinds of trouble. The book of Hebrews is trying to tell us, I've repeated this, there is no plan B. It's just Jesus. If we hold fast our confidence and if our boasting is in our hope, what do you boast about? The great things that you've done, the great things you can do, your past, something? What are we to boast in? The hope that we have in God. We've had this discussion when we talked about hope in general. Hope is not just wishful thinking. I hope that this works out. I hope that I don't get stuck in traffic. I'm just wishfully thinking that these things were true. Biblical hope has as its foundation the promises of God that he has kept. Therefore, I have hope that he will continue to keep his promises. So we are to hold fast in our confidence and we are to boast not in our ability to do things, but rather his proven track record of accomplishing and keeping his promise. Therefore, this is really where we were trying to get. And we have eight minutes left. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your father put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not 
enter my rest. Let's take this apart and look at just a few of the words and then next week we'll finish it off. Don't be like those ancestors who what? Hardened your heart. What does it mean to harden your heart? Whether you're doing it or God's doing it, what does it mean to have a hard heart? I would suspect that many of you have met someone who you walked away thinking that guy or gal has a hard heart. Remember, to a biblical audience, the heart is not that thing in your chest that pumps blood. The heart is the center of your being. If you will, it is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And there is a huge discussion today about what part of that is biological, the brain, and what part of that is spiritual. The answer is yes. If you're a materialistic 21st century American, you think it's all brainwaves. I do not believe that. I believe that we have a brain, which is material, but we have a spirit, and all those interact with each other in phenomenal ways that we cannot totally understand. But the heart is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And if your mind is tuned on the things of God... Your will will choose to do the will of God, and your emotions will follow along. Emotions are not a bad thing. They're simply part of who you are. We are told to love certain things. We are told to hate certain things. And when everything is in tune with God, we are thinking, we are willing, choosing, and we are loving the things that God would have us to think Choose love. But what happens? In Romans chapter 1, there's this scary, scary passage. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, but humanity, instead of worshiping God, chose to worship the created order rather than the creator himself. We chose to worship stuff. That stuff can be a golden calf. That stuff can be a new car. That stuff can be an idol. That stuff can be a pile of cash in the bank. It doesn't matter. We chose to worship the stuff more than we chose to worship God. And it says God gives them over. He gave them over. What does that mean? It means that he let them do it. He just let them. You want to sin? Go do it. Now, we speak about two different kinds of grace in the world. Big, broad category. There is what is known as common grace, which is the grace that is bestowed on all of humanity. The rain falls on the just and the unjust equally. Wouldn't it be really cool if the Christian farmer, the rain fell on his, and the pagan farmer next door was as dry as a bone? That would impress people. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, causes rain to go everywhere. Now, one guy thanks God for it, and one guy just doesn't. One of the aspects of God's common grace is his restraining evil. You think things are bad. Trust me, they could be worse. You can pick any time in history, and it could have been worse. In my world history class this week, we covered the French Revolution. That was pretty nasty stuff. But trust me, it could have been worse. What keeps it from being worse? God's restraining power. He says, this far and no further. But what if he said, okay, you want to sin? You chose to 
worship the created thing rather than the creator, I'll just move that a little bit. And in your heart, what would have been unthinkable becomes quite possible. And what we're seeing is a hardening of the heart. Where instead of the mind thinking about the things of God, the mind thinks about the things of this world. Instead of the will choosing to do the things of God, the will chooses to do whatever it wants to do. Instead of the emotions loving that which they ought to love and hating that which they ought to hate, they begin to love that which they ought to hate and hate that which they should love. My argument to you is that what it mean, that's what it means to harden your heart. Now, here's the question. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes. Because God let Pharaoh do what Pharaoh wanted to do. Now, here's the observation and we'll quit. I once had a class where I talked about, actually in this church, where I talked about hardening your heart. And I had this nice young lady ask me, do you think that could happen today? And I hemmed and hawed for a while, trying to be nice to the nice young lady. And I said, yes. And she says, I don't believe that. A merciful God would never allow that to happen. And I'm sitting there going, I'm sorry, nice, sweet young lady. Wait 40 years. We all know it is a reality. And in case you don't make it back next week, let me tell you what this chapter means. We're going to talk about it next week. Chapter 2 began with a warning. Chapter 3, in the middle of it, starts another warning. The first warning was, don't drift away from the faith. And we talked about that because to me, that is just so evident in so many people's lives. It isn't like somebody sticks a knife in the back of them and says, run away from, no, it's just, uh, you know, just find something else to do. This warning is about hardening your heart where you are no longer pricked by your, in your conscience by God to do that which is right because you've just ignored it. Ah, it is the next step. Do not harden your heart. And we will talk next week what that means and how we do that and how we keep from hardening our heart. But the reason he tells them in this passage is if you harden your heart, you will not have the rest that God promises you. I don't know about you, I'm tired. We've been having play practice every, I mean, I'm tired. What is the rest that God promises? It is the rest from thinking that I have to earn my relationship with God through my actions. If I harden my heart, I will never experience that rest. And that's next week's lesson. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is our high priest and he is our sacrifice. I pray, Lord, that you would soften the hearts of everyone here. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.